possibly one of the few Americans in the room. <laughs> I'm taking this in. <laughs> <laughs> but let's, uh, I think a question, I, I'd just like to pose one question and open up for the floor. Both of you have spoken about the importance of uh, developing these contacts of these websites, magazines, etc. Basically, it sounds like phone calls with a lot of people. Or, or email. Yeah, but maybe maybe you could expound a little bit more on exactly how you do that because I think that's important to everybody in the room. How do you make the contacts who actually can get you the jobs? <coughs> Either of you, just well, honestly, I mean, like my story is. I try and keep it as brief as possible, but it's somewhat long and winding road. I mean, occasionally you, you run into nice people. Most of the time you don't. It's not that they're, they're, they're nasty people, it's just they don't care, they're busy, and they probably won't respond to you. But in a few cases in my career, particularly early on, um, some people at some newspapers bothered to respond to my badly written pitches. Um, I'm thinking in particular of two guys. One was at The Guardian, and one was at The Independent of London. And both one, in one case it turned into a story, in the second case it didn't, but he gave me some advice. When you then events occur, so in my case, uh, the Northern Bank robbery um, happened, and I, I got in touch. I knew the Christian Science Monitor existed for reasons I won't bore you with, and uh, I got in touch with them and said, Would you like a story on this? And they said, Yes, but we don't know who you are, so we'd like you to write it with our London correspondent, which I did. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I promptly forgot about it, cashed the check and forgot about it. And a couple of years later, I went back to them with another story and another and another and another. And you the relationships just develop over time mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. The main problem I have, and the main problem I think most people have, is getting editors to respond to them at all. So one newspaper I work with at the moment um, responds to me within about 20 minutes of pitching, and I've been given the contact, two contacts to a friend several times, and they don't respond to anything he sends to them at all, ever, under any circumstances. Now, I don't know exactly why that is, but I presume it's because they don't know who he is, and they're just absolutely harried and harassed, and yeah. don't have time. That's the hardest barrier to break. Um, I probably personally should pick up the phone more often, uh, I think we all should, um, but getting known is going to help, or at least, I mean, uh, getting known, like, these people don't know who I am, but they can find my work um, if, if they see an email from me, or I can send them links to clippings, I can send them stuff in, in major newspapers. I, I, there was a time when I couldn't do that, but then I would send them stuff from major newspapers and stuff from consumer publications and so on and so forth, so it's just a a case of building up and, and, and working your way up. But I still can't get them to answer a lot of the time. And that is, you know, there's a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, so I, like a lot of what Jason makes sense, sometimes I don't get replies from editors. What I tend to do is I, say, I keep it to one paragraph. I tend to find when it's magazine stuff, they tend to respond. You know, especially, I find magazine stories to be a lot. It's easy, it's harder to get them placed, but easier to get a reply from editors, if that makes sense. Because if they like the idea, but it's just not the right fit, they sort of bank you as someone they want to keep in touch with. But as Jason said, a lot of my career, I, I mean, I kind of view journalism, I think more and more it's become like acting, and that a lot of people are just waiting for that lucky break. And a lot of us are operating at a long tail of it that if you really want to make a sort of steady, stable living from it, you need to get to a certain level. So what I would say is, if you want to get responses from editors at the bigger sites, as I said, start with those smaller feeder sites, because they're more likely to respond to you, and you get your name known that way. And that would, that's my strategy, you know, from when I was trying to break into that market. It's a lot easier now. I have, as I said, an, an agent who helps me do this. Um, but that would be... 
that would be what I would do. I would still do actually, still do, still pitch to those smaller magazines because your name gets known. The other thing I would say is that, you know, in terms of like personal, listen, this is just a personal opinion, right? I personally view news articles as news stories as a loss leader in terms of my market in which I'm most likely to get them placed with Northern Ireland, really small country, doesn't actually pay, the papers don't pay much in terms of freelance copy. You earn marginally less than you would for doing a shift. Um, and so that was why I just started, started to focus on the magazine articles because I made more money from them and there, uh, you have other options with them. The one thing that we're seeing a lot of at the minute, particularly with the New York market, is that stories are being optioned for films. And this has happened to so a lot of non-fiction writers are having their stories picked up. Um, I think the Ben Affleck one, Argo, was it called? Yeah. Argo? Yeah. I, I believe Argo was based on um, a, such what, a story. There was one recently in the in this flicks, which I've forgotten the name of, I'm afraid, but it was also based on a girl I know, Claire Mully, who's an amazing writer who writes about female spies. She had her book about one such World War II spy picked up by, I think it was Angelina Jolie's production company. Mm. So now the chances of, get, of the getting the option then getting to the screen are, you know, it gets not, it's like a, you know, it gets like a funnel, it gets narrower and narrower as they travel down the pipeline. But it's a one way of making money. You know, and if it does get to the screen, it drives book sales and all of that. When I'm hitching these magazine articles, I'm always thinking about the other opportunities that could come out of it. You know, because it's no longer you're no longer just making money from selling articles. I find if you want to operate in this business, I mean, for me, I do my day job, which is editing a new site in the states, and that helps me pay the bills. Um, but in terms of what Jason said about, you know, they don't know that Aaron's a country, that is often true, they don't. And that's the other reason I find magazine stories really helpful, because a good story can be universal, and it can speak across, you know, cultures. To give an example, I went to this first, the narrative got the story I pitched them was about a woman who was investigating the murder of her father and she discovered, they were looking for evidence, and they discovered that the bullet that would basically incriminate his murderers was still encased in his skeleton. And they had the body exhumed, and they discovered the bullet was still there. Mm. Now that was the Ballamurphy Massacre. I don't know if any of you have heard of it, in Belfast, slaughter of civilians. Well, this woman had spent 20 years researching this, trying to find out what had happened to her dad. And her dad had told this story about how he had been, when they'd taken them back to the barracks after shooting them, that he'd been shot again in his lower leg. And she discovered a deposition from a doctor that said that, uh, that they hadn't been able to remove this bullet, but they'd removed the other one. So they presumed the bullet was still in the coffin. And what they found it, army grade, army issue bullet. And that basically saved the day. And I tracked the doctor who did the examination down to Ohio, and he was a famous, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm sorry, I forget the name. What? No, he was, it was to do with bones. That was his, sorry, I'm sorry, I forget the specialist. Yes, orthopedic. He was a famous orthopedic surgeon in Ohio, and he was from Belfast originally. So there was this unexpected American angle to this story. But they loved this story. They thought, and they never, like, they never even heard of the troubles. I don't think the editor that I was dealing with knew anything about the troubles or any of it. 
But the story was so crazy that it just it translated across, as I said, the culture. Um, another example is there was a story published in the New Yorker by a New York writer, who's absolutely fantastic, and it was on the troubles and the disappeared. And as Jason said, I did read it and wonder what would it have been like if an Irish writer had done it. So there, you know, there are uh, there is an appetite there. You just need to think of. I always think is would this if this was a if you were pitching this to a Hollywood producer, would they want to turn it into a movie? That's a good litmus test. And I find those are the sort of stories that I can get over the line with overseas editors. And the net benefit for me is sometimes it pays a lot of money, and sometimes it doesn't. But I get my name noticed somewhere. Like it all pays off. So, for example, with Mosaic Science, it took me months to do the story. So, you know, eighteen hundred pounds really might have worked out as a great cash, you know, cash-wise. And that, if you turn it around at six weeks, it would have been. But I got a literary agent out of it. I got a big, you know, got signed a big agency. Like I couldn't have done that on my own. Like if I was sending my unsolicited pitches and manuscripts to that agent. So that actually ended up having a huge benefit for me. I couldn't have seen when pitching this um, outlet across the waters. You know, these things can have, sorry, these things can have benefits that you don't foresee. Um, and you know what? Jason also talks about the importance of relationships. Relationships are so important. I mean, honestly, see the number. I've had some really lucky breaks in my career. And I can't say I'm more talented than anyone else. It was just I knew the right person, or the right person knew me, and that was how I got it. Do you know? And it was a lot of it was just knocking doors, talking to people, turning up at conferences, speaking at conferences. I got the contact for Mosaic. The editor of Mosaic contacted me because she saw me doing a panel at a conference in London, a bit like this. And then from that, I got into, kind of getting in The Atlantic magazine in the States and getting the agent. So. More questions? I, by the way, I'm not going to sit here and try to uh, uh, pretend that Americans, especially under the current leadership, are not somehow intellectually challenged. So, so uh, I, did, I didn't mean to be meant to insinuate that Americans are intellectually challenged, so please don't, don't tweet have, that. You don't have, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Nobody's tweeting it. Nobody's tweeting it. Except maybe that guy might tweet it. Uh, question right, right here? Yeah, another yeah. American living in Ireland quite ah. a long time, like 40 years. Okay. But uh, I just have a question on whether or not either of you has a website with samples of your work on it. And if you do, does that play any role in, in um, having like a, a presence to in journalism. Yeah, I used to and I don't bother anymore. Really? I mean I own the domain, my own name, .fr, but I, I can't be bothered putting it together. <laughs> I'm working in a very different market. Delira, it might help with magazine work. I, I'm, I mean, I think newspapers, they're not even going to look at it. Um, maybe it would help in a sort of very long term sense. But, you know, you can't direct an editor to look at my website. They'll say, why should I, what, you know, piss off. Would they bother to Google your name and see what came up? Yeah, they might. Um, but then the newspaper stories are going to come up anyway. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. If I could afford to have it nicely designed, one that I could be bothered uh, operating, um, yeah, maybe. But um, Actually, I keep meaning to get round to the website. <laughs> because, only because... Um, I'm sort of moving more into the book publishing end now, because I think, as I said, you know, I, I did the freelancing bit where I wasn't working as an editor, where I was working just exclusively, you know, filing copy to papers, and I couldn't make it work personally. My my market in the north was just too small, you know. Um, but for me, 
In terms of outside of that publishing world, for like journalism magazine work, it's never been an issue. Um, you've got LinkedIn, you've got your Twitter feed, but they're more likely to look first at your Twitter feed before they go look at your website. And mm -hmm. um, as I said, the, the problem, it's, it's a gift <coughs> and a curse, right? And it's a curse especially for people who are not in the WASP circles, as Jason talked about it, is that this market and this industry operates on who you know and word of mouth, you know? So it's always right. I see the Forbes 30 under 30. That sounds really, I got the name 30 under 30. It sounds really, really impressive. But, uh, you know, I knew and one of the judges and he liked my work and he suggested me and the other judges agreed. You know, that was how I got it. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't that I was, you know, it could have been some other kid from North Belfast and they just didn't have, they didn't have the same CV as me, but they just didn't know the contact. You know, and that's the one thing that says this industry is really unfair. I'm lucky, right? I'm one of the lucky working class kids, but I know many that weren't lucky. <coughs> uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's all about word of mouth. Over here. There's no mention of the uh, bar services. Is there any kind of merit in dealing with them at all? Uh, uh, as and as the, second, as the second question yeah. is, what about the European? If you only write in English, what difficulty are you going to have in getting to the European press? Yeah, as well, a, as, can I just interject, as a, as a person who worked for the, for the Wires for a long, long time, AP as well, uh, they are much less uh, interested in, in freelance contributions because, partly because uh, there's the issue of, that has been brought up here already, of legal uh, liability and all that. So the Wires tend to stick very closely with their own staff for the most part. Now that doesn't mean that you can't pitch things to wire services. And I had people, when I was working, my last job at Reuters was working the entertainment uh, side of things in Europe. And I would get people pitching, and if they were persistent enough, uh, which is really what it took, uh, I might uh, at work end up in some sort of working relationship with these people. But it was very rare, and it was really not the done thing uh, for the wires. And, and, and that was true for AP as well. So it's much more of these other sites that, that Jason and, and Lyra have been mentioning, which are, would be interested in, in getting uh, pitches from you and then eventually taking you on. I'm sorry, and then no. Sorry, can I just add something to that very quickly? I sort of started my career working for a really tiny regional wire. Oh, right. And the one thing I would say is they're basically disappearing, I think. Yeah, they really yeah. don't exist as much anymore. <laughs> and getting paid is an absolute nightmare. <laughs> Way it wasn't worth it, and by the time the wire took my slice, I was either basically, you know, employed mostly student reporters, you know, people who were looking experienced and were hungry and just need a bit of guidance because we were so grateful for the experience. We took the little paychecks, you know, but I can't say that it was fruitful for me. But the one thing I did end up doing, I worked as a consultant for Thomson Reuters. They have a foundation, foundation arm, and they had a program called Wealth of Nations. I don't know if it's still going, but yeah, it was yeah, so yeah. Like, it was mentoring uh, uh, journalists in Africa who, to help them investigate uh, illicit finance in their own country. I did that for about 12 months. And like, the pay wasn't great, but I know for those journalists, it was a great opportunity. I really enjoyed working with them. Great opportunity to meet people from different culture. And I know that you know it was a nice wee sideline you know, for what it was. A couple of hundred quid a month for a few hours work, really. and. The journalists themselves, I know that we were always trying to get their copy onto the wire though, and we found it really tough. Yeah. You know, just like these journalists, they were busting themselves, and it was, 
actually, I, I got quite annoyed about it. I think that was one of the reasons I left, was because these guys were just working so hard to get onto this wire. And as he said, they don't really welcome the freelance contribution because that was what we ran into, was the legal thing again and again, in a way that I think there were much higher standards probably applied to these freelancers and they could come from this program than they would their own staff. So it was almost impossible. That's just my experience personally, but the program is worth checking out in case they're recruiting consultants again. Jason, you had something to add? Yeah, just, uh, I mean, I think anyone I know who's worked at a wire always complains that people don't know how to get a story told in 300 words, which is a fair point. I don't know how to get a story told in 300 words. I've barely cleared my throat at that point. Um, you know, it is a problem when you're, when you're trying to introduce an idea to a foreign readership. And, you know, you've got to start from scratch. You can't do that nowhere. You know, you've got to get it. So I think, I think the wire editors find a lot of freelance copy very frustrating. The other thing is... Um, uh, as the papers close their foreign bureaus at an even more alarming rate, the, the, the big wires, AP and Reuters and I suppose PA, more of a British wire, and uh, they have correspondence everywhere because that's the only foreign coverage in a lot of newspapers. Like, um, I've seen my own work appear on services, not wire per se, but you know, in, in, in papers when my work has been sold on. And I have had the advantage of seeing that from the other side of the transaction with one of my own stories, because when I was working for PressEurope.eu, which is now closed down, um, they syndicated one of my stories, which I got paid $299 for, and they charged Press Europe $700 to publish it. So I found that a very interesting experience, even though I didn't get to see any of that money. Um, what was your second question? Writing for, say... Oh, European languages? Paper. Yeah. Um, you're going to find it difficult to get in. Um, they will translate for you. Um, but uh, there was never an expectation that I would write anything in Spanish. Um, hmm. It's going to be very difficult to build the relationship. That's, that's going to be the problem. When I wrote for uh, El Independiente, they came to me looking for something. In fact, in both cases, they came to me. Um, just through people I know, I've, I've got to know over the course of my career. I wouldn't dare write in a foreign language. Um, I wouldn't dare try. Um, maybe some people feel more confident about that, but not me. <laughs> well, I had an experience of writing for Hamburger Dachblatt. Yeah. But they said, only send me X amount because I'll get it translated and then send it. Yeah. That's a difficulty. And do you translate or did they, they translate no, it? No, I didn't, I didn't follow it. Yeah. I didn't follow that. Okay. Any more questions here? So Jason, you were saying how you won't, you won't get jobs in, the, in, the, in most of the European countries. Is that just for, for English writers in the English language sector, or would you say that's the same for uh, foreign, foreign correspondents in their own language? No, it's not the same everywhere. I mean, look, you mean the jobs do exist, but um, the, the competition for them is going to be fierce. And I think the, the days of the freelance stringer being an actual job that you can live off your income are, 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 are either over or, or very shortly coming to an end. Um, but, you know, there, there are some still staff. Um, I mean, you know, ironically, I mean, one of the reasons I don't write so much for the, for the Monitor anymore is that when I moved to Paris, I moved, as I said, I didn't move for any reasons to do with journalism, or other reasons to go. Um, th th there was a time when every newspaper, even small newspapers, had, would have had a series of bureaus just for prestige reasons, reasons of prestige. They don't anymore. I mean, like a big mid-market or mid-sized American newspaper, the Orange County Register, has a circulation about 400,000. It's completely in the black. It makes a profit. It has no foreign news at all of any kind. It just runs wire. And that is very, very typical. You look at the Irish Independent. Um, it takes, I think, Guardian or Telegraph um, service stuff. I, don't, I, I think it has the odd person. I think there was a, a woman who used to work for News Talk who was doing a lot of foreign stuff for them. But like, she might be the only person. Um, the bureaus are just closing. The other thing I would say is that I know there's a lot of young freelancers 
and wanting to make their name and they're heading out to sort of conflict hotspots like so Syria, whatnot. And my is my thing is don't risk your life because okay, <laughs> yeah. But you're from you grew up in West Belfast, so it doesn't it maybe doesn't scare us as much <laughs> as other people. But I, as I said, my day job is covering media for as an editor for a new site in the states, and the number of times that we have to cover young freelancers going missing mm. in these places, and the one thing that came out very very quickly was that they hadn't appropriate protection. There was no insurance. The newspapers weren't taking care of them because they were freelancing for so many different, they didn't have one main contact point. So whenever something bad happened, everyone was scrambling to try and do something. Now there was one, I have to say the papers were very, have been very proactive by trying to help in the aftermath. It's Austin Tice, it's a young American reporter who remains missing out there. And he I believe was an ex-Marine, or ex, I think it was Marines, yeah. And he, so he knew, you know, he knew that country, or he knows that sort of, you know, he knows that environment. He would have been prepared and trained for it, and he's been missing for how many years, and we don't know whether he's alive or dead. So my advice is do not be take, don't be going out to those places. If you're thinking about it, I mean, ideally you want the salary job, but the problem that I said that we're seeing is these freelancers are going out there with no support whatsoever, you know, and then when, when things go belly up, as they often do in these countries and in these situations, there's no, as a one main point of contact, there's no protocol or procedure that immediately picks into place and you have a family scrambling, figuring out what to do because they don't know what to do, you know. Over the years, Reuters has lost quite a few people out in these situations and the company came to terms with that by essentially creating these teams that uh, go in with you. I mean, and, and these freelancers haven't got anything like yeah. that and it's just, Thing the same to go to those places. People I knew years ago who, uh, you know, sort of had a reputation for being able to deal with anything, any sort of situation. Well, several of them are dead, so that's how it is. Sorry, what question back there? Um, no, I, I just wanted to, to bring up one thing, um, because I think probably for the upper journalists, some of this may be quite discouraging, because you know the reality is that it is very competitive. Um, but. Well, one thing which we haven't mentioned, it's not quite part of this agenda, but it's maybe worth considering, is there are a lot of foundations now that, that support um, journalism, you know, in developing world journalism or environmental journalism. There's a website called IJNet, if you have nothing to do with it, it's well worth keeping an eye on, because they post all of those opportunities. And there are some, there's quite a lot of them are for younger journalists or for, you know, training places in Deutsche Welle for a while in Germany, or different things that are out there that at least might help you get started with that. The, the one advice that I would, especially give to young journalists, listen, please don't be discouraged. I have had the time of my life doing this job, you know. Get hit by a bus tomorrow, touch wood I won't, but if I do, I can say I had a great career and I had loads of fun. If I lose my job tomorrow to go work in a call centre, I can say I had a great career and I had loads of fun doing it. But if you're starting out, the great, listen, I work for a California news site from Belfast, we have people in the Washington Post, New York Times, read our site, and I got those contacts through this job. There's a lot of great work happening in technology journalism, and what's happening is that you have remote, what we call remote positions, so where you can work from wherever you are for, like, say, American sites. So I have a friend, great one of my best friends, Matt. Matt works for the Next Web, which is a technology news site based in Amsterdam, and Matt is from Liverpool. And technology reporting is a great one to start out in because you build up the beat. You can work from anywhere, 
you know, your costs and your overheads are pretty low with it, and they do, they pay really good money. And our site I added is a sister site of a much bigger tax site. I can tell you, it makes a lot of money through advertising. So it's a fairly stable living that you can make. It's sort of the one bright spot. And don't over, so don't overlook those big sites and those trade publications, because they, they're actually doing good business. General and current affairs has been pre pretty hard, but I think we've kind of overlooked these really niche wee websites. I know a lot of people here are making good money, to, like run their own sports website. There's a lady I know, or sorry, a gentleman I know who runs, um, I don't know if it's a Daily Canon, it's an Arsenal News website. He started out as a sports reporter, started this blog, makes good money doing it. There's these bright spots that said that we don't talk about these, and they tend to be in the more specialist areas. And listen, I like I really enjoy my job, right? But what I really want to do is write great crime, and I would love to write books full time. Um, but the job, I enjoy it. It helps me eat, and while I work on that job, at my five, that dream of my in my five to nine, I do this nine to five, and I get to have fun. You know, beats working in the call center. So <laughs> I think we maybe have to. Uh, well, okay. It's a quick question. It's just um, kind of the reverse language question because I'm from the Netherlands and um, I live in Galway now. And uh, I was thinking of pitching to like Irish, uh, UK, US uh, titles. Um, and I was just wondering. I don't know if you guys can answer this, but like, is there like a prejudice against no. non-native? No, no, you'll be fine. I mean, as long as you're literally, I, I don't mean like you know EU grade language. I mean absolutely fluent. You're not going to have a problem. But it's different. I mean, it's just that most people I have met, most Anglophones I've met who claim to speak, you know, French or German or whatever it is, yeah, well, they do, but they're not capable of writing it. Oh, yeah. It's very yeah. difficult. Very different to write. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess we have one time for one more question. Anybody? Just one very quick question. Um, my background is radio for years, and, you know, again, working in, as a freelancer in radio, I found you'd go out and you'd also maybe let a couple of other radio stations know and some of the print media. Uh, you know, if it was a story you were covering and you got maybe two or three different things out of the one the one story. Uh, do you, I know now that a lot of the um, print websites have podcasts, they have video clips, all of that. Is that something you do or have looked at or do you still stick with just print and nothing else? So I heard, sorry, you go I personally, I personally don't, I mainly print and text. Well, I said, I edit this media site, so I know a lot, and we're seeing a lot. Podcasts is constantly one thing that we hear about all the time. Massive bright spot in the media world in terms of advertising, engagement. Um, we, did a, we posted a story recently which said that Apple just released these podcast analytics. Basically, we're letting creator, podcast creators know how much engagement they had, their metrics. And they said people, most people were listening to 80 to 90 percent of a an hour-long podcast, and that is crazy. It is crazy. And the engagement—it's the advertising avenue. It's a real bright spot. And that's the one thing I would say too: is don't just think in terms of filing copy, you know, on say a 300-word news story. Look at the states. Look at MediaGizzard.com, which is what I edit, and to see all the different formats that are coming out and arising. I'm really sorry if we were really negative and <laughs> depressed, some of you, but there, the truth is there are loads of bright spots, you know? I mean, especially the rise of long-form journalism, the engagement levels and that. Um, but podcasting is something I'd say, if you can move into that, do, it's a goldmine, absolute goldmine. Jason, last word. 
It's not something I know a lot about, I'm afraid. I mean, I'll certainly do anything anybody wants, particularly if they put an open checkbook. I, I <laughs> feel a little bit. Well, to give an example, I'm doing a proposal. I got one manuscript that my agent is shopping around, but we're working on a proposal for a second manuscript, and my agent said to me, would you consider doing a podcast alongside this? Mm. So it's already making its way into mainstream, but publishing, where they're thinking, um, there was a great podcast called Welcome to Night Vale. That's the article we're saying. There's loads of these podcasts are being turned into films and TV, and they're getting these podcast creators are getting book deals. You know, so welcome that there's like Welcome to Night Vale, Missing Maura Murray. Oh, right. There's loads happening there in terms of these. Um, what's that? Yeah, no, you're right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those happening in terms of these podcasts, then emerging in other platforms, and I said options that I think is a good way to sort of start trying to make a bit more money, additional revenue stream. But yeah, I mean, podcasting it's a it's a big one, you know. And a lot of this stuff, you know, you don't know what's gonna hit and what's gonna take off. So I said, just keep throwing things. Do what you have to do to make money, and by night, just keep throwing things at the wall because eventually something sticks. But yeah, podcasting is one thing I would say, absolutely. Like if you Could search our archives on mediagazer.com for podcasts, you'll see all the things that are being talked about. Yeah. Great. Thank you all very much. Thank you both. Very interesting.